This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now, Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Good afternoon and welcome. It's Tuesday, time for our crack strategy panel, and there are a lot of developments on the political front. Conservative leader Aaron O'Toole got mixed reviews for his speech at the party's virtual policy convention. His message was about broadening the tent, in other words, moving to the center, and he asserted that climate change is real. The delegates didn't go with him on that one. Uh, He made some interesting suggestions, including a national mental health hotline. But does he have his own party firmly behind him, let alone voters from outside the party? The speculation is that we will be going to the polls in the next couple of months. There hasn't been a federal budget in two years, but we have a provincial budget coming tomorrow. And what should we be expecting? The numbers to call 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. And now let's welcome Karen Stintz, CEO of Variety Village, John Capobianco, Senior Vice President and Senior Partner, Fleischmann Hillard Highroad, and Charles Souza, the former Minister of Finance for Ontario and Member of Provincial Parliament for Mississauga. South. Hi, everyone. Hi, Libby. Hi, Libby. Let us begin with Charles. So uh, you have been in this position before. We're about to get a provincial budget tomorrow. What are you looking for? Well, I anticipate, given what I've heard from Beth and Tholly and others, uh, an aspirational budget. I mean, he's already admitted that it's a, not a sustainable budget. Uh, they seem to be dependent upon some federal transfers uh, to enable some of uh, their investments. But it's all about investing, trying to promote economic growth and job protection. There is some support for health care, from what I understand. But the FAOs already disputed this issue around their you know, degrees of contingencies. There's about, there has been about $4 billion in contingencies, which they've now spent or said so they will spend. But Libby, it's tough. It's a tough budget, and it's tough circumstances, to be fair to them. Well, uh, absolutely. Um, Before we move along, the one thing I'm looking for, so they finally, finally came up with some kind of blueprint for fixing long-term care, uh, uh, you know, for the future. And the last time they talked about this, there was no money put beside it. So what kind of money would you be looking for that if uh, well, there's any credibility to what they've been I saying? I think the number I read was a total, about $2 billion going into long-term care supports and some additional monies for health care in regards to the COVID uh, support. But uh, they have made clear that they will now provide support and invest money in those issues. They say they're not going to cut programs, notwithstanding the deficit, which is going to top over or probably up to $40 billion. So they're recognizing that these are extraordinary circumstances and they're going to do what's necessary to invest. That's what they're saying. But they're also going to provide some form of plan to balance. And that plan is going to be dependent. And so I'm saying it's all aspirational on the ability for government, for, for businesses to have a comeback so that they can source revenue. And unfortunately, they haven't really done a good job of determining how they're going to source those revenues. We already had cap-and-trade and other so, uh, revenue sources that they did away with. We had green economic jobs to provide for those new businesses and new economic recovery, which they've done away with. So it's going to be interesting to see how it proceeds. But it's one of those budgets that's going to be, let's hope for the best given the circumstances, and that's a bit challenging, for sure. Karen, uh, Charles just mentioned $2 billion for long-term care. Does that sound like a reasonable number for them to do what they say they want to do at this late yeah. stage, I might add? Yeah, at this late stage. And, you know, and also, there, you know, there was an announcement in September for $500 million, so I'm assuming that, you know, probably that 
will be rolled into whatever they announce in their budget so that it may not be net new money. It might also be money that's already been committed and yet not spent. Well, so, that's, that is, that's, uh, one of the, I don't know if it's a scourge or a source of amusement or what, because, uh, right. journalists are always looking for reannounced money. Exactly. Exactly. And so I'm, I'm imagining that there will be some reannounced money in this budget, uh, just because of all the reasons that Charles mentioned about the constraints the government is facing in terms of their revenue. Now, you know, we do, we, you know, if you read the paper, you see that, the second wave wasn't nearly as bad on the economy as the first wave, but there's no question that some sectors have been extremely hard hit and are going to need some more support than others to get back. Um, but, you know, if they really have a plan to, you know, rebuild long-term care such that it is safer for people and um, then equip the staff and make the staff available to support those residents, and that, that is, that's a big proposition. Hmm. Uh, John, I mean, it, it's it, it's not going to be any kind of classic conservative budget. It's going to be big spending and, and big deficits. Yeah, I agree. Uh, it, listen, uh, you know, given the pandemic and given the money that's being spent quite rightly in, in, in a lot of the areas, both at the federal level and at the provincial level, there's no doubt it's going to be a continuation of that. But as Charles knows so well, um, given the fact that he's delivered a number of budgets, each budget is, is hugely critical. But the closer you get to an election, um, each budget becomes even more uh, important from, from the perspective of, of just, you know, shoring up your base uh, and, and making people uh, and voters feel comfortable that you've got a sense of, of, of plan and, and of an issue. Now, I, I, with conservatives, normally that would mean some sort of fiscal prudence and, and some line or sight to, to getting the budget's balance, the books balanced. But obviously, that's not the case. And, and Premier Ford's been pretty clear with respect to that he's not focusing on that at the moment, and nor should he, given the fact that we're still in the pandemic. But I would imagine it's going to be a budget of, of aspiration, one of, of, you know, just reiterating some of the money that they've already spent over the last little while uh, on the pandemic in the various uh, spaces, including healthcare and most specifically healthcare. But uh, I think more particular to long-term care facilities, like, you know, the fact that they've made this huge uh, announcement of funding, which is probably the largest in any government's history in Ontario, um, I think is going to be, you know, a, a huge point of the, of the plan, because obviously that's one of the areas that well, we've talked about this a number of times on the show that could be an Achilles heel to, to the government is, is long-term care. But they've, they've identified the issue. Obviously, it, it was, was given a huge spotlight during the pandemic. Uh, and the government has been trying to, to, to give money to the industry and trying to you know, put regulations and do things that will allow for more um, long-term care uh, workers' uh, safety and also the patients to, to survive. And I would imagine that, that that's going to be a huge part of this this budget, not least of which the $1.2 billion that they mentioned yesterday for, for hospitals uh, and trying to show up some of their fiscal um, issues that they've had to deal with as well. Things like lost parking revenue or retail sales within the hospitals and, and other areas of that sort. So a lot of hospitals will be getting that money and you'll see that in the budget as well tomorrow. So it'll be very heavy on spending, very heavy on the healthcare side of it. Um, but also an eye towards some sort of recovery down the road. Charles, how would you rate Aaron O'Toole's performance at the Conservative Policy Convention? Well, I can appreciate his desire to come to the center. I think most of us in Canada are centric. You know, um, I, I appreciate his desire to do something in regards to the climate response. And he's in a he's in a predicament whereby some of his you know staunch supporters are denying the climate re- re- issue, and they don't want to even um, discuss the opportunities to look at alternative ways to reduce emissions. And he's taking it upon himself at, the, at least show some leadership there. I find it fascinating though that his response to climate is to you know look at carbon offsets. He even cited. The provincial jurisdictions that are, are 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 responsible for it, and he used Quebec's cap and trade as a means by which to emulate what we can do across Canada, of which Ontario already had. I implemented that with my colleagues two years prior to us leaving. We were sourcing 2.7 billion in additional revenues, all reinvestments into green jobs, dollar for dollar. So those were important initiatives, which the Ontario government, the new government, took away and. 
wanted to pick a fight with Trudeau over carbon tax, which was unnecessary. But at least O'Toole recognizes the, the need for us to address this issue responsibly. Will he do it? Will he be able to succeed? I think he's going to have a challenge because his base doesn't want to seem to do it. Uh, yeah, I guess uh, maybe he's hoping he gets a new base. Karen, were you inspired by him? <laughs> well, you know, Libby, the first rule in politics, right, is know your audience. And Aaron O'Toole is in a pickle right now because his audience that showed up at the convention is not the audience that he wants to speak to. And that's the dance that he had to do at the convention. And, that you know, I think he wants to speak to the broader Canadian audience about the issues that actually matter, um, given the, 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 the multiple threats we're facing on multiple fronts. But unfortunately, his convention constrained him because he was dealing with matters that he didn't particularly want to deal with. He didn't get the opportunity to address the policies that he would have preferred to discuss. And so it's just one of those unfortunate things that he, you know, if he could just, you know, erase it from his memory, I'm sure he'd like to. (laughs) Convention experience, but it's a challenge that he's got to wrestle with because I, I think he is a centrist. I think he is pragmatic. I think he is, um, has the interest of Canadians at the forefront, and yet his, an element of his party is holding him back. And, you know, the rest of the party needs to engage in a more meaningful way to give him that audience that he can speak to that is broader and, um, and more pragmatic. John, uh, again, back to the inspiration question, and, and he's also been, uh, uh, you know, very judicious, or he's not putting himself out there very much. Well, you know, and that's that's a, always a challenge with any opposition leader. You know, given given on, on the best of times, I think being an opposition leader is a, is a rough job um, at the best of times. But you throw a pandemic in the in in, in the midst, and of course, it becomes an even even rougher job. And as as you know, Charles can can attest to it with his uh, liberal leader uh, Stephen Del Duca, who's you know struggles to try to get an ounce of coverage. You know, it is tough. There's there's no question about it. So, but but wait a know, minute, it's not just uh, you know getting an ounce of coverage when you're out there. I mean, O'Toole uh, is reluctant to put himself out there. He seems to have been talking to chambers of commerce uh, and staying away as much as possible from from the media and not making himself available at this convention uh, very well, much. I mean, I, 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 would, I would dispute that. Libby, to be honest, I was a delegate at the convention. He was out there as much as he can. You know, of course, given the fact that this was the first virtual convention ever, and I've been to conventions since I was 20 years old. And, and you know, obviously the, the, the euphoria of, a, of a, an in-person convention where the media are there, they're roaming the halls, they're talking to delegates there they're talking to officials all that was gone right so so you have to also understand that it was literally a virtual convention where you know we sat at a at at our desks and watched it on a laptop uh and it was a difficult from that perspective so challenging as it is but listen O'Toole has never missed an opportunity to get out in front just today he made an announcement because it's opposition day in ottawa and he was making his announcement he sends out press releases on a daily basis he tries to do what he can given the challenges but nonetheless it it was it's not an excuse that, you know, being an opposition leader is, is never an easy thing. All I'm saying is that he is doing the best that he can. And I thought his speech was actually really, really good. I thought it was themed around securing Canada and the ability to be able to allay some of the Canadian fears about the security of, of, our, of our country. He talked about five key points about securing jobs, securing accountability, mental health, as you mentioned earlier, um, and, and just in general, securing the economy. And I think those are key points. With respect to the environment, he used his, his most important speech ever, you know, given the fact that everybody was watching, not only the 5,000 delegates, but Canadians in the media, to talk about how, you know, this climate change debate is over, that climate change is real. And notwithstanding the fact that 54% of the delegates um, voted for that one thing to be removed, the line about, you know, climate change is real, the, the actual, that didn't make pol- public, uh, the government's policy, or I should say the, the party's policy flat platform because you need a double majority, which means not only the majority of delegates, but the majority of provinces. And that never really met the threshold. So yes, 54% of, of, of delegates talked about that. But let's not lose sight of the fact that climate change was addressed in the party in the 2011, 2015, and 2019 election platforms, always talking about climate change being real. And that's really the key point. Uh, speaking of Aaron O'Toole and the Conservatives, and and they're trying to hold the Liberals to account, so uh, they're still asking, uh, pressing on the We Charity scandal. They want more answers. Also, uh, interesting press release from 
Aaron O'Toole's office uh, talking about basically the, the bottom line on the sexual impropriety scandal at the top of the military, basically asking what did they know and when did they know it, uh, and talking about how the prime minister first said they, they moved as soon as they heard the first thing. Well, maybe not quite that fast. Charles Souza, is, is that uh, an issue that has legs that, that will be top of mind as we go to the polls? Yeah, I, 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 I'm sensitive to them. So for me, they have legs because I'm, I like things to be transparent. I like people to be up, you know, up front. And it seems like there's some backpedaling going on in both cases, both with we and the military uh, uh, issues that, uh, uh, between both both generals or the two individuals that were were charged or at least accused, um, it's the response by government that's important. And I, you know, I can attest to the time when I was there, and uh, we had to deal with some controversies, and we didn't. Uh, we were trying to be upfront, but we were always on the defensive. And certainly, that's the opposition's hope is to put you on the defensive in this issue. Um, I I think people's minds are on COVID now. They're they're really concentrating on their their economic well being. They're looking at other things. These two stories uh, uh, are, are relevant for me. But I'm not sure how relevant they may be for others. Karen, yeah, I think the we story is becoming less relevant um, because in the court of public opinion, I I think that. Um, if you were to ask people, you know, who's to blame for the WE scandal, I don't think they'd point the finger at the, the liberal government. They'd point the finger at at the brothers. And so, the, I mean, they've come off looking as they're, they're, they're the reasons that the whole thing fell apart and it had nothing to do with the liberals. So, you know, in that sense, they, they deflected that, I think. And at the time that people go to the polls, I don't think anyone's going to associate that scandal with the liberals. Uh, you know, I think that the military scandal has has a little bit more, um, could be a little bit more problematic for the liberals, again, just because it's so off-brand and it's so counter to whatever, everything the liberals have gone out, particularly Justin Trudeau, in terms of equal rights, gender-balanced cabinet, making sure that um, there is no harassment in the workplace. And yet, you know, here's a case where there was clear harassment and systemic... Um, sexism. You know, uh, sexism, thank at you. At the very least. Um, that it was, you know if not well-documented, at least well-spoken about, and yet nothing got done. So, uh, you know, from someone who is, you know, does pay attention to these things, I, I think that if we do go to the polls in the next couple months, I, I think that the military scandal has much more, it should be much more of a concern to the Liberals than the we. Okay, let's take a call from Pat. Hello, Pat. Good afternoon. Um, if, uh, if the Conservatives don't get on stream with the uh, the um, the climate change. I clearly won't be voting for them, and I would otherwise probably be voting for it. So this is not a minor issue. Um, with regard to the We Charity, sorry, I don't blame the brothers. I blame Mr. Trudeau and his mother, and you know, Mr. Morneau. They knew better, and they're the ones that should take the heat on this. The brothers young guys they're trying to run a charity not quite sure if they're just running it on their own um you know in the sense that they've got this business on the side but, oh, like uh, I'll say. yeah so so uh don't make it it's quite clear when i listen to the debate who who is a, a member of which party so anyway i'll try to be neutral but uh and, <laughs> and on the other issue it comes down to who's going to pay so yeah, don't be surprised. If we want to pay for all the old folks' homes, uh, then we will see a 5% increase in our taxes. I mean, that's what's got to happen. And, you know, so we have to mention that, that things cost money. Anyway, I'll leave that with you. Okay, Pat, thanks. Libby? Yeah? Libby, can I just say, uh, can I just say to, to Pat's comments, and thank you, Pat, for, for your comments. I would say on the, on the environmental side, you know, again, as I mentioned earlier, I think that what you're going to see and what you heard from, from our leader was that, you know, he is, there's no question that he is going to um, continue to, 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 to focus on the environment, that climate change is real. So that's one thing that you have to, that's the key thing. But more importantly, on the, on the WEF scandal, and to your question about whether or not it's going to have, you know, people like Pat and others still find 
the we scandal, you know, leaving a bad taste in their mouth. And I think what you're seeing with the opposition and, what, and with Aaron O'Toole and his party is that it's part of a broader narrative of, of just the ethics issue and, and corruption and, and the cover-ups. And, and item two of, of what of the speech was secure and accountability. So the reason why they're bringing a we up is because it did, live a, it did leave a bad taste in a lot of Canadians' mouths, how it was handled. So bringing it up along with the issue of the, of the, uh, of the defense staff and all those other issues all speaks to a narrative of this government being, uneth- being ethically challenged. And that's going to be an election issue. Or 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 the, or they just fudge it, um, or try to cover which it up. which a lot of people uh, sort of expect from politicians. They do, you know, uh, they say one thing one day and perhaps another thing another day. Uh, Charles, do you think? I mean, if reading the punditry these days is the the they're saying, oh, definitely an election soon, a month and a half, two months. Do you agree with that? Well, it seems to be the case. Uh, all parties are gearing for it. I don't think they want it. Um, I don't think the public wants it either. Um, but, uh, you know, there's a minority situation. And to your point, there hasn't been budgets. There's been real no plans from the federal government relative to what they're going to do next. And so they need a reset. And it could be that the selection will happen the moment the vaccines are out, the moment the supply is available, the moment people are getting injections in their arms, when there's a bit more calm, there's a bit more optimism about what the uh, economy is going to look like, um, then there may be a call for that election. Uh, but in, we'll see. We'll see. I, I, I certainly would like uh, another year of, of, of regrouping and re. You know, I, 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 there's just so much to be done. And. Um, We'll see. We'll see. There's the, the, some of these scandals that are being spoken about, for me, are real. But some of the issues that are more important is the long-term effect of the economy and of Canada. And our, and, our, and our finances and our ability to support all this going forward is critical for me. And that's regardless of political strike. But, yeah, I, 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 all indications indicate that's probably going to be an election within the next quarter. Okay. Uh, Karen, the two Michaels. So yeah. they've both been tried in secret, and some of the commentary on that is, uh, well, they've been tried in secret. Uh, there's, it hasn't been on television or anything, so perhaps it's a sign that something is being worked out that could lead to their eventual release. The government um, has said a few things against China, that China reacted very very vehemently too, and and uh, the ambassador to China, Dominic Barton, was recalled. A lot of people say, "Hey, that wh- what about that? Well, that seems to be a mistake." So that he wasn't even there for this. Uh, what what's your view of that? Well, again, I mean, I, this is just my you know uninformed view and my perspective on it. But you know, I think the fact that the you know the Chinese took advantage of the fact that the Can- the Canadian ambassador was recalled to have the trials, and so. I don't think it was a situation that too bad he wasn't there. I think he wasn't there, so the Chinese then decided to make their move. And then they had a, a trial in secret. You know, I, I would say the fact that they didn't pass a verdict is good news, if there is such a thing as good news in this case, and that there is still room to negotiate. And and I do think it looks um, it, it looks as if the international community is paying attention to the bullying of China and how dangerous it is to the world order. And it's not just about a diplomatic spat between Canada, the U.S., and China. It's actually a much greater issue about how China treats the rules of diplomacy. It's about how China treats treaties, about how China views human rights. And they are, it's increasingly evident that they're writing their own rules. And then the world has to decide, are we going to follow China's written rule, or are we going to stand up for what we have collectively negotiated and buy into? And so I think that there is a collective shift around, okay, we need to change our approach and I, I think that that is a good thing globally. Um, how and if it's going to be able to be of benefit to the two Michaels, um, you know, I think time will tell. But, you know, it, it appears as if, you know, there seems to be a, a way to resolve it in terms of um, dealing with the extradition, extradition issue regarding um, the Huawei. But again, it, there's still so much we don't know. But but I do think that there is a collective awareness globally that there needs to be a new a new approach and a coordinated approach to China. Uh, John, I mean, there's a perception that Trudeau's been pretty soft on China, at least until now. Um, is is the way this is unfolding uh, exacerbating that, or what? 
Well, I think the perception is reality. There's no question that, that the Trudeau government has been really soft on, on China and, quite frankly, not knowing how to deal with them from a diplomatic perspective. They'll claim that they are behind the scenes making some moves, and I hope that they are uh, in order to save the two Michaels. But, but there's, the, you know, the Chinese government is actually thumbing their nose at the, at the world the, the, the diplomatic state of affairs, and, and, and not only to the Canada and the U.S., but everywhere else. Uh, and, and Karen is absolutely right that this, the, China, the Chinese government was very, very strategic uh, in, in starting these, uh, these, uh, these, verdict, or these uh, court hearings, you know, based around the fact that, um, you know, high-level bilateral talks between the Chinese and U.S. officials, the recalling of the, of the diplomats, all of this is, is absolutely the reason why the, the Chinese government is having this. And also the fact that there's a, a no, no verdict announcement. Believe me that, that China, if they wanted a verdict, would have a verdict. But the reason why they're announcing it at an unspecified later date is because they're using this as yet another tool to see if they can negotiate with, uh, with the U.S. specifically on, on some of the issues, and given the fact that Biden is now the president. So there's a lot of that stuff that's going on. Uh, this Chinese government has not been transparent about this, has not been truthful about how they've been dealing with the two Michaels. And I think that, you know, the prime minister does need to get tougher. He is starting to get tougher with China. Um, but I, I got to believe that there's got to be something that, that, that needs to be done. And, and this will be an election issue. You saw Arnold Tula has made China one of, his, one of his strong suits from the time he was running for leader to the time he became leader, and he will continue to put the, the, the prime minister's feet to the fire with respect to getting tough with the Chinese government. Okay, we are almost out of time. Uh, Charles, uh, starting with you, what would you like to leave us with? Well, in regards to China, I find it disturbing, and I'm hopeful that people aren't being used. Imagine two years of someone's life being held hostage. At least there's some support from countries now. At least 26 of them are coming around showing support for for Canada and the negotiations and hopefully supporting the two Michaels. Regarding other things, I'm hopeful that the budget tomorrow will be uh, will have a good blueprint to outline more specifically what we're going to be able to do to have that economic recovery while providing the services and the programs that are so essential to us. Karen? I just think I reflect on our discussions about the vaccine rollout, and it, and it appears as if the bumps have been ironed out. And um, although, you know, there's still some back and forth. I, I'm, not, I'm not sure I agree with that, but go ahead. No? But, you know, people are getting vaccinated and, um, you know, it's now moving to 75 and over. And then, you know, there's discussion about, you know, to, the, to, to change the different priority groups. So, you know, I think we're in a much better place. It's not perfect yet, um, but we're in a much better place than we were three weeks ago. And I think that is uh, some cause for hope. John. Yeah, just quickly, I think that I'm hearing more and more anecdotally, my friends are getting vaccinated. I'm seeing it on social media. I'm getting calls and texts saying, hey, I just got vaccinated. So that, at least that's happening at, at a quicker rate than before. So that's good news. And I think the budget tomorrow is going to be one of aspiration with respect to what the money they've spent and they're going to spend on health care. And more importantly, a sense of the recovery moving forward. Okay, thank you so much, Charles Souza, John Capobianco and Karen Stintz. We will hey, talk to you again soon. Good afternoon, everyone. Thanks, Libby. Bye, everyone. Okay, bye-bye. We are going to take a break. And on the other side of the break, speaking of vaccines and the rollout, despite recent good news, there's a lot of hesitancy around the AstraZeneca vaccine because of, I think, a lot of uh, bad publicity. But we will drill down on that, among other things vaccine-related, when we return. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Schneimer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. We've seen a rocky debut for the AstraZeneca vaccine. It started with a dosing error in an early clinical trial, uh, where there was also a dearth of older participants. In addition, there was a whole layer of European politics, and we saw some countries hesitating to use it on an older population. And when they reversed course, there was another pause in its use in some places because of a very small number of blood clots. Well, yesterday we got very positive results from a much-anticipated uh, U.S. trial, but despite that and some very good real-world data, there is still hesitancy about this particular vaccine, even though millions of people of all ages have already received it. Here's our health minister. 
if I can convince one other person to receive the AstraZeneca vaccine and that helps protect them and their health and safety and that of their families, I'm more than happy to do that. Well, that's right. So uh, presumably we will at some point soon see her get the jab on camera. And we saw the health minister in Quebec do the same with the AstraZeneca vaccine. Now, I can tell you that a lot of people have asked me about it. I've said many times that I think it is perfectly fine, but I am not a doctor or a scientist. So uh, <clears throat> let us turn to them. First, let me give you the numbers. 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. Now I'm joined by Dr. Prabhat Jha, epidemiologist and faculty member at the Dalalana School of Public Health at the U of T, and Dr. Iris Gorfinkel, family physician and founder of Prime Health Clinical Research. Welcome. Thanks for joining us. Many thanks for having me, Lovey. Okay, well, we'll begin with Dr. Gorfinkel. I bet a lot of patients have been asking you about this. Oh, so many. And basically, it's confusing for people because they keep hearing a yes and a no and a no and a yes about the AstraZeneca vaccine. Let me try to simplify it. Essentially, you have two sets of data, the data that the company has provided, and that's through two trials. The initial one was the one that took place largely in the U.K., South Africa, and Brazil. That involved 24,000 people. That showed almost no death, essentially no death, and a tremendous reduction in hospitalization. Then we have their second trial, which, you know, we have the results of, as of yesterday, 32,000 individuals were in that trial two-thirds of whom had received the vaccine. This one did include a large number of individuals over the age of 65. So we had a, approximately 20%. So that's actually very, very good. And what they found is no deaths and no hospitalizations after having received that vaccination. And that is totally consistent with the other set of data that we have, which is the real-world data, in which millions of recipients, this is largely from the UK, it showed a large decrease in death and hospitalization. So essentially, there were no deaths after receiving the AstraZeneca vaccine, and hospitalizations were greatly reduced. What there seems to be consistency in all of these trials, real-world data and the actual trials from AstraZeneca, is that there is no signal about significant, serious problems with it, including blood clots. So the safety has been well established. It's just a pity that we have so much confusion around the vaccine. Dr. Jha, what's uh, your view of this? Is is it just a matter of, of uh, bad publicity, basically? I think it's a combination of the company not doing a good enough job to uh, make sure that the science is what leads, as Dr. Gorfinkel has summarized very nicely. The evidence is overwhelming that this vaccine, the AstraZeneca vaccine, is as good as um, all the others in terms of preventing hospitalizations or deaths. I would take the vaccine. I would give it to my elderly parents that I love uh, very much without hesitation. And now a little bit of the background. The the reason it didn't uh, cover 65s initially is it was the first off the mark. And at that time, the child had some concern about safety in older people. So they just didn't enroll people over 65, but now they have. The other thing to note is you will get differences when governments um, sometimes make uh, what I will call silly announcements. So the French president himself, not being a scientist, decided to pontificate that, oh, perhaps we don't do the AstraZeneca in about 65 ignoring the fact that it simply hadn't been tested by that time. He had to backtrack and say, yes, I will actually uh, recommend it. And it's a combination. The, uh, the company didn't appropriately get the scientific facts out first. Remember, companies in the market that we have do have pressures from their shareholders and trying to make profits. So sometimes they get ahead of the facts, which is a mistake. And... Uh, I think that's more incompetence. You know, it's that Napoleon expression, never assigned to malice, which you can reasonably assign to incompetence. So I think there's been some PR incompetence 
but the product itself is absolutely safe. I would have no hesitation in giving it to anyone. Now, it's interesting. Uh, I have friends in the UK, uh, one of whom is was a very, very senior pharmaceutical executive. And what I have heard from them and also seen from uh, other senior people being interviewed on TV is, is they think that in this case, there was also plenty of Brexit politics involved. The British government uh, was involved in, in funding the vaccine. And uh, it, there, there was some issue with, <clears throat> excuse me, Europe getting it. And uh, somehow this managed to play into it. And I think if I'm not mistaken, Angela Merkel refused to take it. Yes. So what we've got here is those are symptoms of a uh, overall failure that's led to vaccine nationalism of both types. Canada's been hit by this as well, right? That we said we'd get enough vaccines up here quickly, but no doubt both President Trump and President Biden told the American manufacturers, look after us or we'll shut you down. Forget about Canada. I have no doubt that that conversation occurred. So what is it that uh, we need to learn out of this is I hope what will rise from the uh, scientific ashes of COVID will be a commitment to a global vaccine facility with many countries, many manufacturers, and the ability not for any one group to shut down the other, uh, which has happened when you've got a very poor ecosystem of vaccine manufacturing. So I hope going forward we do come up with a much, much better solution. The first vaccine experience that we have on a mass scale is worth remembering. Some of the older listeners may remember that is when polio vaccines were rolled out. And that model was very different. Jonas Salk said, I'm not patenting it. He wanted it used very widely. And world laboratories really geared up very quickly, including our cannot to manufacture it basically at cost. So they didn't make any profit on it. That's the right model for pandemics not the model where it's one institution or one uh, company or there's egos involved. And we've done terribly on vaccine nationalism, but that's a reflection of the poor scientific ecosystem that we had before. But it, it also, frankly, I mean, if you think that, that making a lot of money or getting a lot of credit is um, an incentive, we also have four vaccines a year on, which is, you know, which is unbelievable which is incredible it's the it's a great victory of science but it's a failure of kind of institutional science and how science is funded and organized okay people and what's striking about astrazeneca is that it's actually the cheapest of the vaccines i mean but the ratios involved here you recognize for moderna you could vaccinate literally four people four to five people with astrazeneca for the same cost as moderna and that has tremendous implications in global health, plus the fact that AstraZeneca is stored at regular refrigerator temperatures. They both require two doses, but this has the potential to change the very face of the pandemic. I really greatly lament the vaccine hesitancy that's been created around AstraZeneca. And now, I don't know if you've heard, but there's even more information yep. coming up. Yep. Okay, so you know what? I'm going to have to take a break. I, I do want to talk about, on the other side of the break, Iris, um, the intersection of general vaccine hesitancy and the hesitancy over this particular vaccine. And, and uh, this is the vaccine that pharmacies are getting and are going to continue getting. And I think, Iris, you're getting some as well. Absolutely. We're hoping to get it in my office, although I still don't have a date just yet. I have many patients who refuse to take it from anywhere else but our office. They do not feel safe in other locations. But that I, said, I think it's absolutely fabulous, the work of John Papasturgio and other pharmacists who've really banded together and an all-hands-on-deck sort of attitude to change the face of how quickly vaccines are being rolled out in Canada. 
Yeah, uh, he he, and in just one of his stores has given out a thousand shots in the pilot project. That's just one out of four stores. I'm going to take a call from Jen, and then we're going to take a break and and continue this conversation. So, uh, Jan in Guelph, hi. Hello, uh, Libby. I just have a message for those people who are hesitant uh, or will not take the vaccine. And here is the message. When you're out driving or walking, go through all the red lights, go through all the stop signs, go through all the do not walk signs and risk your life because that's what you're doing if you don't get the vaccine. Uh, Good (laughs) analogy, Jan. Thanks for your call. Okay. Bye-bye. Okay, and uh, yes, we're going to take a break. And uh, before we go to break, uh, people, if you can get that shot, ha- take a look at two things. The number of cases is going up, uh, a growing number with the more difficult variants. At the same time, things are opening up. And remember, it takes two weeks for your immunity to build after you get the shot. So you're not even free and clear once you get the shot. Uh, so... Really? Like, what are you waiting for? With that, we'll take our break. Let me just give the numbers out again. 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. We'll have more on AstraZeneca when we come back. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Zneimer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. We've been talking about the AstraZeneca vaccine, a lot of conflicting and changing information about it. And uh, it's resulted in quite a bit of hesitancy around this particular vaccine, uh, in addition to vaccine hesitancy in general. And uh, I'm going to get right to the phones. Jim and Pickering. Hi, Jim. Hi. Uh, good morning or uh, afternoon. You know, I'm very conflicted on this, and I'll tell you why. I went out on Thursday, and I had one stop to make, and then I was going to go to Shoppers Drug Mart to see if I could uh, register there. I got my high-dose flu shot, which I hadn't bothered for years getting. I had that done in the fall. So when I was in a very small lineup before that, I spoke to the person. I mean, I said, well, it looks like we're going to be getting some of that vaccine, AstraZeneca, from the U.S. He said, yes because it's going stale. This is the vaccine they're sending to us because they kept it in storage because they didn't have the confidence. Okay, I'm going to stop you right there. Uh, So first of all, the vaccine that uh, was or is in the pharmacies in the pilot project, that has an expiry date of April the 2nd. We're still not there. And uh, I think really the bulk of that's been given out. And I was wondering about that, too. I don't think we're getting expired vaccines. No. Uh, uh, So I think that particular batch I then saw was not going to expire before the end of April, uh, which is is probably close for the Americans because they haven't even approved it yet. But, but why hadn't they used it? They they haven't approved it yet. You have to ask the CDC. Oh, God. So they give it to us. Well, we asked for it, didn't we? Um, so, Jim, you don't want to take that one. You're going to rather wait and see uh, if you don't catch COVID in the meantime. I don't know if I have a choice, but I'll just do the best I can. Thank you, Libby. Okay. Bye. Okay, who wants to comment on what we heard, Dr. Ja? Well, I think you have to understand vaccine hesitancy, really. First, I think the worst thing is for public health people to talk down to people that are hesitant about vaccines. That's shown just really not to work. But if you look what happened, Libby, in the U.S., there was lots of vaccine hesitancy during the time that Trump was in uh, was his president, and he kept saying, oh, and raising some doubts about vaccines or even in court COVID. Now, what's happened since is since the scientists started talking more and more about what the vaccine does, the levels of people refusing a vaccine or saying that refuse has dropped significantly in the U.S. So I think one of the lessons is you want to put evidence before the public fairly and in science, it's absolutely fine to uh, say there are some things we don't know and there's uncertain. Uh, my concern is too much of the communication has been led by 
the the vaccine industry. So the the last AstraZeneca press release was just was a bit of a shambles because it sounds like they didn't even consult their own data team when they wrote it up. Um, and if more science gets out and more scientists are saying we believe this, they show it by uh, taking it themselves and uh, and uh, showing uh, their parents or others uh, injected, then I think that'll build the confidence. So the vaccine hesitancy comes from a political context where people distrust government. And the solution for that is not to scold people. The solution is to say, what are your fears? How can we address them? And we'll show you the evidence and you decide. And when you do that, the levels of, of people refusing vaccines goes way down. Yeah, I, I think the political element, which which in the States is is pretty wild, and it, it breaks down. I mean, I think it's like a, a really big percentage of Republicans, but exactly. not so much yeah. Democrats. Yeah. I mean, I don't think it exists in, in, in that way here. Very was, few people are actually van, anti-vaxxers. You don't recognize that's probably 2 to 3%. These are anti-science people who are against the concept of vaccination. For the most part, the vaccine hesitant are asking good questions that I myself ask, that other healthcare workers ask, that Health Canada itself asks. These are questions that drive good clinical research. There are questions around safety, side effects, perhaps the speed at which the vaccines have come to market, not realizing that it's billions of government dollars that fueled the research, the pre-purchase of vaccines, manufacturing the vaccines in advance, planning their deliveries, the government's doing rolling reviews, checking data as it came in. That's what sped up the process. And as far as the side effects, we know and understand what they are. There's soreness at the injection site, fatigue, mild fever and flu-like symptoms that do not prevent people from missing work. So there could be longer-term side effects. And ah, so fatigue is a side effect? And the uh, Health Canada is watching for those very carefully. The vast majority of side effects of any vaccine will be make, make itself very clear within three months. Uh, I, no, so I have a, a question, and it came from a caller who, who had to leave, and, and I did hear something to this effect from a doctor, and that is that AstraZeneca might be a little less effective against the South African variant, though uh, as far as I know, we don't really have the South African variant here. Uh, Dr. Jar, you, do you know the yes. answer to that? We have very few for that, but uh, the key metric here is what protection do you get against getting hospitalization or dying from the, vac- from the infection? And almost all of the vaccines have about 100% protection. And what's really important now for your listeners and others to understand is the more people that we get vaccinated quickly, the more resilient we will be to the introduction of potential strains. I mean, that's bound to come. But these new strains, the variants of concern, the it's basically a race. We've got to see if we can really ramp up our vaccines. Um, and after some early stumbles, I think Ontario and Quebec really have substantially improved their vaccines as of this week. Uh, so that's that's promising. But the key message is if you've got anywhere you can go a vaccine, go on the website, go on the chat, go to the pharmacy, call the number, get a vaccine as quickly as possible for all of the eligible groups. That would would, would be really help us uh, to stay ahead of the variants, stay ahead of uh, an increase in hospitalizations or deaths. Okay, we're, we're starting just a second, Scott. Iris. I want to get to a couple of things with you, and we're almost out of time. So the two things are, uh, you mentioned there was another uh, piece of information, I guess, that came out from another body in the U.S. this morning calling into question that there was some old data in the information that was released yesterday. Yeah, let me explain, yeah, let me explain what that was. Is The company press release, perhaps some 27-year-old, two-willing press officer, wrote some details of what the results were. The appropriate body, the data monitoring and safety data said, oh, those aren't the correct numbers. And the right thing though here would be to get the full scientific results, the paper, so that uh, experts can actually uh, critique the paper out very quickly. And that's what I believe 
that companies should do, not lead with a press release, but get the data and get the paper out. And when that's out, I have no doubt it'll have the same findings that Dr. Gorfinkel summarized. Very high evidence that it works, very few side effects, and the effects and the benefits fit the real-world evidence. So I have no doubt that that's the scenario. It was just uh, some someone in too much of a hurry to put out a press release made a boo-boo. Okay. Uh, I'm just going to take a quick call before uh, we direct the next question at Iris. Uh, Judy in Oakville. Hi, Judy. Hi. Uh, my question is, I was listening to CTV News at noon, and um, one of the doctors, I'm sorry, I can't remember who it was, that was saying that the for seniors, the uh, immune response after the first dose is much lower than for okay. what they thought, and uh, that perhaps this four-month delay for the second shot is not well advised. Okay, Judy, I'm going to suggest you listen to our news because we deal with this stuff all the time. Uh, I'm going to let a doctor answer, but the bottom line is that uh, f- f- as people get older, their immune systems are slower across the board. That's just the way it is. Uh, but I'm going to let Dr. Gorfinkel answer that quickly. Yeah, many thanks for your question, Judy. When it comes to any of the vaccines, two weeks So four weeks after getting dose one, no one has died after any of the four vaccines. Hospitalizations are greatly reduced. I think we're going to see various numbers because there are so many different studies coming from different countries. And as I say, you've got studies from the companies and you have real world data. But the take home message, the forest through the trees, no one dies once they've been vaccinated of COVID-19. COVID-19 is officially a vaccine-preventable disease. And in fact, no one should be dying now of it. You know, so we could talk about what's going to happen with the variants of concern come the future. But for now, this is what we have. You know, hospitalizations are greatly reduced after any one of the vaccinations. The differences, if there are differences that are substantial, are within the milder disease, the moderate disease, the ones who never make it to hospital. And don't forget, we have no head-to-head data. So who doesn't want 95% over 70%? But it's not that simple because these trials were all done in different countries at different times, different seasons, different populations, and different amounts of variants of concern. So we cannot compare one trial to another to know which is, in fact, the best vaccine. But we do have data from Scotland from the real-world study that says that at older people, either vaccine was pretty effective for preventing hospitalizations or death. And that's not data from a few thousands. That's data in in a few millions of people. So I have complete confidence that all the vaccines currently available are effective and safe, and they work in all the populations that we care about, including our elderly. Okay. uh, I have to cut everybody off because we are really out of time. There are a couple of questions that I wanted to delve into that we did not get to. Uh, Also, taking up on uh, Iris saying that some people only feel safe in the doctor's office because we know that a lot of over 80s are not getting their shots. Uh, But we will, and people, if you couldn't get through, probably going to deal with this again tomorrow in some fashion. In the meantime, thank you so much, Dr. Prabhat. Ja and Dr. Iris Gorfinkel. Many thanks. Okay. Uh, That's all the time we have for today. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.